You might remember that one of the names for the book of Numbers, the Hebrew name is Bamidbar. Bamidbar meaning in the wilderness. And it's the book of the Israelite journeys in the wilderness. However, the first ten chapters, they're not in the wilderness. They're still at Mount Sinai. For these first ten chapters are preparation and purification. Organization to get the Levites and the Israelites all together ready to go to move out to head toward the land of Canaan. Now beginning in chapter 3 verse 1 it tells us now these are the records of the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. Who's, who are these the records of the generations of? Aaron and Moses. Very good. You're right Spencer. I think we are a little slow. Let's, let me, I'm trying to give the easy questions first. You know, the more obvious. Just a good guess. <laughs> these are the generations of Aaron and Moses. That tells you something right off the bat. What does it tell you about the relationship between Aaron and Moses? Family. They are family. What kind of family? Brothers. brothers. Good. Aaron and Moses are brothers. Moses is the younger brother. Which I wonder how Aaron dealt with that. Moses is the big chief. He's the head honcho. He's the leader. He's the one who got them out of Egypt. Well, the Lord did, but he was the right-hand man. Aaron had to be the second man until God said, Aaron, you're going to be high priest. You're the high priest. Well, these two men are brothers, sons of the same father. The father of both Moses and Aaron is a man by the name of Amram. Now, if you trace it back, Amram was the son of a man named Kohath, and Kohath was the son of a man named Levi, who was the son of a man named... Anyone know? Oh, wait, who said? Jacob. Jacob, Israel, tribe of Levi. Levi was one of the twelve sons of Israel. How you doing? <laughs> you with me tonight? Amram was father to Moses and Aaron. Amram's father was Kohath. Kohath's father was Levi. Okay, so there's, there's the connection. So both Moses and Aaron are of the tribe of Levi. They're Levites. That's important to know because as we go through this, chapters 3 and 4 are literally about the organization of the tribe of Levi. Chapters 1 and 2 talk about the organization of the tribes of Israel and all their camps. Remember God talked about how they're to camp around the tabernacle in four main camps. And if you look at those camps, do you recall this? From an aerial point of view, if you look at the camp stretched out, spread out there, it looks like a big cross. Amazing. Now we're looking at the tribe of Levi and where they camp around the tabernacle. They're right up close to it. You may recall that we said those who serve in ministry, those who are the priests here, get to live closest to the Father. I think there's a principle there. That those who serve in ministry, and that can be you and me, any of us who serve the Lord, who work in ministry, we camp closer to the tabernacle. We're closer to the Father. But we're going to look at these uh, camps and their organization and the, the tribe of Levi and its literal uh, breakdown. Before we get there, though, you may recall that originally the entirety of Israel were called to be priests. The whole people, the whole nation, all of Israel were supposed to be a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests. Listen to this, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. 
Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel, God told Moses. So tell Israel, you're all going to be priests, a big moving nation of priests, and as you come into the promised land, you as my priests, and this is the, the um, idea of the Father, this was his plan, Israel would be the priest to bring the word of God to the world. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world, that's a quote from an Old Testament passage that Israel was called the light of the world. Originally that was the idea. Oh, so did God's idea not work out? No, God knew it wasn't going to work out that way because he knew man is man. And he still, by the way, brought the truth to the world through Israel, as you know, through Jesus Christ. But they were supposed to be a nation of priests and somehow that role got transferred back over just to Levi. To where now one tribe of all the tribes gets to be the priestly tribe. They're the ones who are numbered as the tribe of priests. Look at verse 12. Just skip ahead and look at this. God says, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel. Instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb, among the sons of Israel. By the way, the King James Version there says, From everyone that openeth the matrix. Which I think is cool. I don't know if that means they know special ninja moves or what. But in the NASB, it's the first issue of the womb, among the sons of Israel, for the Levites shall be mine. So originally it was going to be every firstborn of the tribes, of all the tribes of Israel, those would be the priests of Israel, but now it's just Levi. Why is that? Why were they chosen to be the priestly ministry? We're going to talk about that in depth on Sunday. I'm not going to spend any time on it tonight, but I do want to give you a little appetizer to chew on, and it's Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Listen to this. This applies to why the tribe of Levi was chosen. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would know how for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man. For neither I received it from a man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, look, I can stand up and I can stand firm in the face of any heat, any struggle, because I'm not seeking to please man. I am seeking my desires to please God and God alone, God first, God against all others. He's the one that I want to please. That's why the tribe of Levi ended up being the royal priesthood of Israel. What do you mean? We'll talk about that on Sunday. Now, mind you, the Levites were not perfect. Far from it, as we see. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 going on tells us that these are the names of the sons of Aaron. Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests whom he ordained to serve as priests. But, verse 4, Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of their father, Aaron. Two things to notice here. Number one, notice the children of Nadab and Abihu. They had none. They had no children. Now that line is an important line to notice. I have that underlined in my Bible. And they had no children. What's the deal here? Remember back in Leviticus chapter 10. We studied this recently a few months back. 
Nadab and Abihu on ordination day offered up strange fire in their fire pans we don't know exactly what the strange fire was but they got all excited with the ordination process it's likely they were drinking and so in their excitement they offer up this strange fire and the real fire of God emitted from the in middle of the tabernacle came blasting out and licked them up dead in an instant left nothing but ashes they were immediately killed a severe, severe judgment on the part of God. I look at that story, I read that story, and I think, man, that, that's intense. That God would just burn them up like that. I mean, okay, maybe they were a little tipsy. All right, maybe they offered some strange fire. They were just caught up in the moment, Lord. It's like Ananias and Sapphira. You remember those two? Acts chapter 5, you can read the story later, but this husband and wife team sell some property and they secretly determined to keep part of it and give the other part to the church, but they told the church that they gave it all. And so as they stand there lying in separate instances before Peter, Peter says to Ananias, hey, today your life is required of you, and he dropped dead. Sapphira comes in later, and Peter says, hey, did you sell this property for the amount that you said you did? And she said, of course we did. And he said, this is the end of your breath. And she dropped dead as well. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And the two of them were wiped out, and all of the Christians in the early church were filled with the fear of God. Nadab and Abihu, Ananias and Sapphira, in these two instances, and they're similar instances, by the way, because they're both at the beginning of a priesthood, Nadab and Abihu at the very on ordination day for the priesthood of Israel, Ananias and Sapphira in the early days of the church, and God immediately cuts them off, takes their lives. Why? Sin is stopped dead in its tracks. It's stopped dead in its tracks. That's why such an intense punishment. Why we're told here they had no children. You see, daddy wouldn't be around to pass on to son and to the next generation that sinful attitude, that sinful heart. Stop it dead in its tracks so there won't be sin among the priests later on. Wait a minute, Rick. We know there's sin among the priests later on. We saw, we read, we can see it in the Bible that there are latter uh, priests who, who sin, who are not perfect, yes. But at least in the foundational moments of the priesthood, at the very beginning, it started right. And God had no patience for those who would sin. But let me give you another example of why this was so important that these two men were taken out at the time that they were. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Part of the reason we have to jump ahead to these other stories in Scripture is it's going to take us so long to get there, we might as well get some of them now while we can. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1 gives us another moment where God meets out some serious punishment. But he puts it in the hands of the first king of Israel, King Saul. Verse 1, 1 Samuel 15. Page 298 in my Bible. Then Samuel said to Saul... The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. You may remember that. We studied that in Exodus. As the Israelites were coming through, the Amalekites, the people of Amalek, were taking off the rear guard. They were sneaking out and attacking from behind, trying to get the stragglers and those who were slow. So God says, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, as, by the way, God will punish anybody who comes against Israel. 
Verse 3, he says to Saul, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him. Put to death, listen to this, it's intense, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Kill them all, the Lord says. Is that out of the Quran or the Bible? That, That sounds... Pretty terroristic, Father. What, what's going on here? Read on. So Samuel summoned the people, or Saul, sorry, Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the city. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go and depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. That's the one place in the desert where you can be sure. Verse 8, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Alive. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, their king, and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed which is kind of a principle for all of us it's easy to kick out the stuff we don't like it's easy to turn off the people that we don't have any use for but the good and beautiful and the best of us that's what we want to you know, be next to and work with and, and be around well why would God do this? Why would God tell Saul utterly wipe them out? The reason is to put the dog out of its misery. To put the dog out of its misery. What do you do with a dog that has rabies? How many people saw Old Yeller? See a show of hands here. Okay, I'm not going to tell you this story again. Some of you know I showed it to my kids when they were way too little to see it and they're still in therapy for it. But the movie, the movie at the end of it, Old Yeller is in that cage and he is rabbing me and you know, he's spitting and he's, he's crazy. And they had to put him down. And that's the Amalekites. That's the Amalekites. Their sin was so intense, so depraved, so wicked, that even leaving a child alive would leave the future possibility of that sin recurring and God says, wipe them out. By the way, if you think God is unmerciful, remember, when the children of Israel were in Egypt, they were there 400 years, and that was a 400 year span of grace where God was giving the people of Canaan opportunity to repent for 400 years before Israel came back in to again meet out God's judgments well so Saul goes as the Lord tells him to but he doesn't do what the Lord tells him to he wipes out everything that's not pleasant that's not pleasing that's not good but he keeps all the the good stuff and he keeps King Agag alive he second guesses God's righteous judgments you might say, well, good for you, Saul. At least you showed a little mercy. That's not a bad thing, is it? Gang, Saul had no idea what the Lord knew was coming. What's that? Second Samuel chapter 1 tells us 23 years later that Saul would die at the hand of an Amalekite. Had Saul obeyed the Lord in this moment, all the Amalekites wiped out, then that possibly wouldn't have happened. But Saul's own death was as a result of an Amalekite that was alive. But that's not all. The people of Israel would be plagued in an intense way by the Amalekites later on. How so? Esther chapter 3 verse 1 tells us that after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. 
You like the name, don't you, Heather? The Agagite. This guy Haman was Hitler of his day. Haman sought to wipe out the Jews. That was his plan. He wanted them all completely demolished. And he would have succeeded if not for Esther. And that whole story is told in the book of Esther. But gang, Haman was the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. The Agagite, what do you mean? You remember King Agag, who Saul kept alive? He apparently continued then to have a family and children and on down the line. And it is through the line of Agag, who was supposed to be killed by Saul, that Haman was born. Bringing terrific persecution to the Jews. If Saul had obeyed the Lord, Haman would never have existed. Haman the Agagite and Agag was the Amalekite king that Saul spared. We need to understand something here about sin, and that's this. It always takes the flow of blood to stop the flow of sin. One way or another, it takes the flow of blood to stop the flow of sin. Before Jesus came, the only way literally to put down sin was to kill the sinner. That's the reason, by the way, for the flood. When sin was so bad, eight people were left who could possibly even be considered being toward God in the whole of of planet earth but it always takes the flow of blood to stop the flow of sin good news Jesus blood flowed effectively and pervasively and Jesus blood today can change a family line can get in the way can stop a pattern a generational pattern that's handed down time after time after time whether it be spousal or, or child abuse or, or drinking or some kind of problem that tends to repeat itself generation after generation. Hey, listen, this is good news for those of you who have kids and maybe your past wasn't the greatest. Jesus can stop the flow of sin. His flow of blood can make all the difference. Can literally set down, and I believe this not only literally but spiritually, there is something that happens when the blood of Jesus comes on a person that can change generational sin that goes from one person to the next. Gang, there is power in the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But John 1.7 tells us the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Now back to our text. In Numbers chapter 3, before Jesus' perfect sacrifice, the only way to cut off sin was to cut off the family line. And so Nadab and Abihu were put down And we understand a bit further now as to why they had no children. By the way, one last thing on this. If you still struggle with the uh, severity of God's judgment, especially in some of the Old Testament passages, but in the New Testament as well, listen to this verse, Revelation 19. Verse 1 says, After these things I heard something like a great loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. And gang, that's the church in heaven praising and glorifying the Father. So here's the guarantee. If you don't understand the severity of God's judgment now, you will then. In fact, you'll understand it so well that you'll praise God for His righteous judgments. And we will all see and we will all understand. So the children of Nadab and Abihu, they had no children. Second thing to note is the children now of Aaron. The children of Aaron. Reading on in verse 5. Verse 5, the Lord then spoke to Moses saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. 
They shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. You shall thus give the Levites to Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the sons of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. This is important to get, to understand this. The Levitical priesthood is probably better described as the Aaronic priesthood, not ironic, you know, or erroneous, the Aaronic, as in the name of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, for it was only Aaron and his sons who would serve in the high priestly ministry of sacrifice. Not all the Levites. Well, the Levites were priests of a type. But the high priesthood would only and always go straight down the line of Aaron to his sons after him and their sons after him, them all the way down the line. You could put it this way, every priest is a Levite, but not every Levite is a priest. Every priest is a Levite, but not every Levite is a priest. All of the Levites will have priestly responsibilities related to the tabernacle, as you'll see tonight. But not every Levite serves in the tabernacle. And the rest of chapter 3 now breaks down the specific duties of each family within the larger tribe. So remember this, it's only the children of Israel that have that high priestly ministry, and then the rest of the Levites have other jobs as well. Verse 11. Now again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, from man to beast. They shall be mine, I am the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, Number the sons of Levi by their father's households, by their families, every male from a month old and upward you shall number. And so Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord, just as being commanded. These then are the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. Gershon, Kohath and Merari. These are the names of the sons of Gershon by their families, Libni and Shimei. And the sons of Kohath by their families, Amram, there's, there's Aaron and Moses' dad, and Izhar, Hebron and Uzziel. And the sons of Merari by their families. By the way, there was a, there was a fourth son who, who didn't make it, actually died in a car accident. His name was Ferrari. <laughs> and the sons of Merari by their families, and his two sons are Molly and Mushi, and I'm not even going to touch Mushi. These are the families of the Levites according to their father's household. So the three sons of Levi were again Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Now, Moses and Aaron were sons of Amram, the sons of Kohath. Moses, as a prophet to the Lord, would never serve as a high priest. He would never be a part of the priesthood. He was the prophet. The priesthood then was given to Aaron. And from Aaron on down, Moses' older brother, he's the first high priest. His sons then will serve with him or perpetually after him. But this leaves us with the three remaining sons. Aaron excluded Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Okay, so remember, every priest is a Levite, but not every Levite is a priest, except for one exception. There's one exception to this rule. Let me say this again, and tell me if you know what the exception is. Every priest is a Levite. Is there an exception to that rule? Can you think of a single priest who is not a Levite? Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14, tells us it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. 
a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. But he goes on to tell us in Hebrews 7.23, the former priests, that is, of Levi, on the one hand, they existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing their priesthood. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's also able to save forever those who draw near to him through God. The, the Hebrew writer explains to us something about Jesus' priesthood that's different than the Levitical priesthood. And that's that Jesus' priesthood is eternal. But think about this. Not only is Jesus post-law, he's also pre-law. Did you know Jesus was pre-law? He was. In fact, the Hebrew writer will tell you, and you can read about this in Hebrews chapter 7, that Jesus was after the order of a different priesthood, a priesthood of Melchizedek, which is a totally different topic for another night, but a priesthood that was in existence before the law and after the law. The eternal priest, Jesus. And so he's the one exception to the rule. Other than that, all, all of the Levites, or every priest is a Levite. But of course, not every Levite is a priest. Now back to our text. Once you see the differing duties of the sons of Levi, as we move through this, verse 21, of Gershon, we're going to see the Gershonites here. Of Gershon was the family of the Libnites and the family of the Shimeites, and those were the families of the Gershonites. Their numbered men, in the numbering of every male, from a month old and upward, even their numbered men were 7,500. The families of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle westward. So they were on the tabernacle side, uh, side of the west. And the leader of the father's household, households of the Gershonites was Eliasaph, the son of Lael. By the way, the, the names are the same in, in uh, Jerusalem today. In fact, one of our tour guides was named Leor. Not Eeyore. That would have been a little slow and boring. But Leor. And he was great. Leor. So, you know, I see names like this. Lael and Eliasaphath. And they're, they're still using them. So verse 25 tells us the Gershonites. The duties of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting involved the following. The tabernacle. And the tent. It's covering. And I want to circle covering. And the screen for the doorway of the tent of meeting and the hangings of the court and the screen for the doorway of the court which is around the tabernacle and the altar and its cords according to all the service concerning them. Now listen, this is important. The Gershonites had a key role. These guys were not the high priests. They weren't the ones that got to dress up in the glamorous garments of the high priest. They didn't get to go in and experience that holy of holies moment. They weren't the ones who did that. Their role was to provide covering. To provide covering. Maybe that's your role in the body of Christ. Maybe you're one like the Gershonites who is to provide covering. Maybe that's your priestly ministry. We often and rightly so, gang, connect prayer to covering. When we think about, boy, I, I was covered. There's, there's a certain person here, I won't mention this person's name because I don't want to embarrass her, but uh, she prays often for me and will send me emails of, of the prayers of the day. And I feel covered. In fact, especially on Wednesdays or Sundays when I'm going to teach and I know that there's been prayer lifted up, it's wonderful because I feel like I'm going in and I've got some cover. That's the ministry of the Gershonites. They cared for the coverings of the tabernacle. Now flip to Isaiah chapter 58 because I want to explain something here. Isaiah 58. This is the verse we, we read together in our elders meeting on Monday night and it has stuck with me all week and I've gone back to it several times. Isaiah 58. I want you to think about something here because 
there is a, 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 an intense and intimate connection between effective prayer and practical ministry and you truly can't have one without the other. In fact, you could put it this way. Effective prayer is married to practical ministry. Let me explain why. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 58. Cry loudly. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and they delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. Oh, they delight in the nearness of God. Know anybody like that? Someone who, oh, and Jesus just seems to be on their lips. And, oh, they just love the spiritual and they love to be with other Christians and just be singing. And that's a good thing. But there's a problem here in Israel. They say, why have we fasted and you do not see? In other words, Lord, we want to be near you and we ask you for decisions and we're a good, righteous people, but we're fasting and you're not answering our prayers. They go on and say, why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, the Lord would say, you find your desire. You drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is this a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth as ashes and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? And the Pharisees hadn't gotten this. Jesus said about the Pharisees, Oh, they love to make their fast known. They love to make sure that everybody sees it. Boy, they're just, they're worn out and they just aren't looking good. What's going on? Oh, I'm fasting today, brother. I'm suffering for the Lord today. This is my damn fast. You can see the dark circles under my eye. I haven't had anything to eat for six hours, man. I'm fasting. And I'm going to the Lord. And he says, that's not what I'm looking for in a fast. Listen to what God's looking for. Verse 6. Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness. To undo the bands of the yoke. And to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? And to bring the homeless poor into the house. When you see the naked, to cover him. To cover him. There's your word. To cover him. Oh, but I've been praying for I've been praying all day long, all week long. I've been praying to cover so-and-so. I've been praying for him that he would be covered. Yeah, but have you done anything else? Now, I know, I know what we talk about in the church. The most effective thing we can do is pray. And I am not undermining that at all. The problem is that there are people who would pray and stop right there. Why is that a problem? Read on, my friends. He says, when you see the naked, to cover him and do not hide yourself from his own flesh. He says, then your light will break out like the dawn. And your recovery will speedily spring forth. And your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Listen to this. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. When will God hear our prayers? When we are acting. When we're doing. 
when we are working for the Lord. Oh, wait, wait. Now you're getting into works. I'm into grace. Hey, I'm into grace too. But grace, if you're really into it, will drive you into works because you want to do anything you can to please the Father who already saved you. Understand that? And so if I'm truly a grace-filled, a saved person, then for goodness sakes, I should be doing the work of the Lord. I should be willing to roll up my sleeves to loosen the bonds of wickedness and undo the bands to, to divide my bread with the hungry to bring the homeless poor into the house and to cover the naked oh I can cover you all day long with prayer but God would say if you want your prayers to be heard cover with prayer and then you go cover the naked yourself you have physical impact and contact with hurting people you take the name of Jesus to a lost world that, that whole song that we ended up with send me is what it's about send me Lord don't, let, don't send somebody I'm not praying that you'll send someone else I'm praying that you will send me and that when I get up in the morning and head to work man I am going to take the name of Jesus to those around me because I'm not there for a paycheck you know your paycheck is from the Lord anyway if you have a single cent given to you it's because God has seen fit that you receive that that has nothing to do with the work you're doing Every good and perfect gift is from the Father of light coming down from heaven. God gives it all to us. It's because of Him. So forget about the paycheck. Forget about doing that kind of a job and use your job, use your schooling, use wherever you are as a mission field. Say, God, send me. And touch those around you. And the Lord promises, your prayers will be heard. Why would you pray for someone you could care very little about except for in words? The Gershonites, they provided covering. James says it this way, James chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? How ridiculous is that? This became a catchphrase from some friends of mine and I in college our freshman year. We said that all the time to each other. Hey, go and be filled. Yeah, go and be filled. It was our sarcastic way of, of recognizing that we do it all the time. Don't we? Hey, how you doing? Well, I'm having a hard week. Oh, I'm so sorry. Let's gotta, gotta get going. What's going on with you? Well, I, I, I'm going to be seeing the doctors after. Hey, I got to take this. <laughs> so, go and be filled. But you do not give them what's necessary for their body. What use is that? So the Gershonites, they were all about covering. And I'm just encouraging that if you are called to a ministry of covering, listen, covering prayer should drive you to covering people. Yeah. Verse 27, back in Numbers chapter 3. That's the Gershonites. The Kohathites. Kohathites, verse 27. Of Kohath was the family of the Amramites. Say that three times fast. And the family of the Izharites. And the family of the Hebronites. And the family of the Uzziahites. These were the families of the Kohathites. In the numbering of every male from a month old and upward, there were 8,600 performing the duties of the sanctuary. The families of the sons of Kohath were to camp on the southward side of the tabernacle. I mentioned on Sunday we got to stand on the south side of the Temple Mount on the steps, the very steps Jesus went up. Love that. It was so cool. Are you all going to go to Israel, by the way? Can I see a show of hands? How many of you are planning on going in a year? You can say yes now because you got a year to you know, flake on it. But... You gotta go. You gotta go. Okay? So one year, I'll give you more information as I have it. Where am I? Oh yeah, so there's camping on the south side. 
Verse 30, the leader of the father's households of the Kohathite families were Elizaphan, the son of Uzziel. Well, that, that was Elizaphan, the son of Uzziel. Now their duties involved, watch this, the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the utensils of the sanctuary with which they minister, and the screen and all the service concerning them. And Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, was the chief of the leaders of Levi and had oversight of those who performed the duties of the sanctuary. The Kohathites. The Kohathites' key role, setting up furnishings of worship. They set up the furniture. They got the tabernacle ready. They, they carried the pieces. They would carry the ark. Now the ark was already covered. They weren't allowed to see that. But they would carry the, the ark, the table of showbread, the altars. They, they bore those things as they walked. And when it came set up time, they set it up. They cared for those implements of temple worship or of tabernacle worship. Their role was setting up the furnishings of worship. Big deal. It is a big deal. Do you realize that many of us come in here every Sunday and Wednesday and we have a comfortable, clean seat? The chairs that we all mess up every week are right back where they were before. Does anybody know who does that? I do. I'm not going to say. Does anybody know why there's not bird poop on every seat in this barn? We are still in a barn, gang. Does anybody know why there aren't rat's nests everywhere in this barn? Why is it clean? Why is it straightened up? How come it looks the way it looks? How did it get decorated at Christmas? How does all this happen, gang? There are people who are in the ministry of setting up furnishings for worship. And this quiet custodial ministry is a valuable worship tool. We don't even think about it, but it's here. It's ready for us. Listen to this. Galatians 5.13, Paul says, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Serve. You know, when, when I talk about, God, get us out, send us, send us into ministry. When I say those of us in ministry get to camp closest to the tabernacle and we think, well, I can, I can never really be in ministry. Many of you are in ministry right now. In the simple things that you do that go unnoticed. But that's what the Kohathites did. The tabernacle was always set up. Now when the high priest went in to make those offerings, the furniture was there. It was ready to go. The Kohathites. The key role, setting up the furnishings. Now we move on to the Merarites. The Merarites. Verse 33. Of Merari was the family of the Malites and the family of the Mushites. These were the families of Merari. Their number of men were 62,000, or 6,200, sorry. Verse 35. The leader of the fathers and the households of the families of Merari was Zuriel, the son of Abihael, and they were to camp on the northward side of the tabernacle. By the way, the northward side of the tabernacle, does anyone know what would be north of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? North of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and just tuck this away for future studies, is Golgotha. Directly north is where Jesus was crucified. Directly north is where the Garden Tomb is. As you stand on the Temple Mount, you can look up and see it. It's not that far away. Well, these guys camped on the northward side, and their appointed duties, interesting, were the, uh, the sons of Merari involved the frames of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, <laughs> and all its equipment. And the service concerning them and the pillars around the court with their sockets and their pegs and their cords. And you can imagine that the Merarites are looking at the sons of Aaron and going, not there. We get the wonderful duty of carrying around the frame. Great. We got the sockets. We got to put the posts together and hang the screens and whoop-de-doo. Whoop-de-doo. 
gang, they provided an incredibly important role for the tabernacle. They were into the support and the framework. They were the ones that the tabernacle, without their work, would not hold together. They were the setup guys, support and framework. And again, we see a behind-the-scenes priestly role without which the high priest could not function, without which he could not do his job. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. In a like manner, in the royal priesthood of Christianity, there are varieties of gifts with the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So we are all called to ministry. And not all ministry looks alike. Not all people are going to preach. Not all people are going to be on the worship team. Not all people are going to have those upfront roles. But that doesn't diminish the importance of ministry, each of us one to another, and discovering what it is that the Lord has for us. Well, going on, verse 39-8 tells us, Now those who were to camp before the tabernacle eastward, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, are Moses and Aaron and his sons, performing the duties of the sanctuary for the obligation of the sons of Israel, to put the layman, but the layman coming near was to be put to death. So only Aaron and sons and Moses he could approach as well. All the numbered men of the Levites whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the command of the Lord by their families, every male from a month old and upward, were 22,000. 22,000. By the way, where did the high priestly family of Aaron camp? You catch that? Which side of the tabernacle were they on? East. East. They were on the east side. And on the east side of the tabernacle, that would also be the entrance to the tabernacle. So Aaron, Moses, and their families right there at the entrance of the tabernacle, the closest to the doorway. Who else comes from the east? Jesus does. Isaiah 41, verse 2. Who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet. He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. Zechariah 14, verse 4 says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Most of the pictures you see of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem are taken from the Mount of Olives, and that's where Jesus will stand. And when he does, Zechariah tells us there's going to be massive earthquakes and topographical changes. The Mount of Olives itself will split right down the middle. Why? So that those Jews in Jerusalem, that remnant protected by God, can flee through that to get out of Jerusalem and be protected. And that day, his feet will stand in the east. In Matthew 24, 27, Jesus himself said, Just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Gang, more than anything else, the role, the job of the high priest was ultimately to herald the coming of Messiah. That's what he did. Well, I thought he offered sacrifices. Yes, as a picture, as a type, as an arrow that pointed to Messiah. They camp in front of the east side to point to the coming of Messiah expectantly. They go in and offer sacrifices to call attention to the need for a Messiah daily. That was the job of the high priest. To herald Messiah. Well, verse 40 going on now tells us that the Lord said to Moses, Number every first... You see why it's called the book of Numbers. Number every firstborn male of the sons of Israel from a month old and upward and make a list of their names. You shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord. Instead... 
I want to circle that. Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the sons of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of the firstborn among the cattle of the sons of Israel. And so Moses numbered all the firstborn among the sons of Israel just as the Lord had commanded him and their numbers... Uh, sorry, I got lost there. Forty-three, and all the firstborn males by the numbers of the names from a month old and upward, for their numbered men were twenty-two thousand two hundred and seventy-three. And we have a problem. God wanted the Levites to replace man for man all of the firstborn of Israel, right? He wanted to take for each person, firstborn son of Israel, there needed to be a Levite that would take his place as the priest. For that to happen. We're 273 Levites short. If you look up above, the number of the Levites in verse 39 was 22,000. The number of the firstborn of Israel was 22,273. So we're off by 273. We have 273 firstborn sons of Israel who are not covered, who don't have a, a, a counterpart in a Levite to be a priest. You might say, big deal. It is a big deal because our God is not a God of confusion. And our God is very well ordered. And our God already knows what he's going to do with this. Because it's supposed to be life for life. He already has a plan. Look at verse 44. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the sons of Israel and the cattle of the Levites. And the Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. Now, for the ransom of the 273 of the firstborn of the sons of Israel who are in excess beyond the Levites, you shall take five shekels apiece per head. You shall take them in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras. That's about one fortieth of an ounce. And give the money, the ransom, of those who are in excess among them to Aaron and his sons. So, of the 273, multiply that by uh, five shekels apiece. Five shekels times 273. And all that money would be, it tells us in verse 50, 1,365 shekels. And that went directly to Aaron and his sons. What for? To buy their priestly robes? No, just went to them. Spending money. I guess so they could go down to the canteen and get candy bars on hot days. They could just, it was just for them. Verse 51, Then Moses gave the ransom money to Aaron and to his sons at the command of the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. You see, if you don't have a life for a life, the Lord declares a price must be paid. In other words... Every, every life has a cost attached to it. He's not saying that each one of the Israelites are worth five shekels. Okay, that's not the point. The point is that there is a cost for every life. And the same is true for us today with Jesus. And you see, while we can't purchase our salvation, our salvation was most certainly purchased. We can't buy our salvation, but our salvation was bought. 1 Corinthians 7.23, Paul says, You were bought with a price. 1 Peter 1.18 Peter says, You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. And again, Revelation 5.9, The redeemed in heaven sing to Jesus, You purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now let's roll on. Chapter 4. Really? We're going to do another chapter? We're going to do this one fast. Okay? Verse 1. Then the Lord spoke. I wanted to do chapters 5 and 6 too, so count yourselves lucky. Verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the descendants of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their families and by their father's household. From 30 years and upward, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. Now listen. 
Again, you can go back and take a little more time on this whole chapter on your own and glean all kinds of interesting tidbits, but there's just a couple things I want you to see. Two things. Notice the numbers and consider the colors. Notice the numbers and consider the colors. What do you mean notice the numbers? Look at verse 3 again. The priests were to be from 30 years and upward, even to 50 years old, all who entered to do the work in the tent of meeting. Verse 23 tells us, from 30 years and upward to 50 years old, you shall number them all who enter to perform the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. Same thing in verse 30, same thing in verse 35. It's repeated four times. 30-year-olds, that's the age, that's the target age. When a man turns 30 of the tribe of Levi, he can enter the priesthood, and when he's 50, it's time to retire. Interesting. The Levitical ministry begins at 30. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4 tells us David was 30 when he became king. Luke chapter 3, verse 23 tells us what we all are probably guessing right now. Jesus was 30 when he began his public ministry. But this makes me consider a verse, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 22. Paul is instructing Timothy on asking men to be elders, and he says the following... Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Now, I don't know if you ever watch like VH1 or, or e, e Entertainment Network, and they're always doing these shows about child stars whose lives are totally messed up now. You ever seen those? It's like Punky Brewster now is like dealing drugs in L.A. I don't know where she is. But, but the child stars never make it. The, the young sports athletes who, who get in early. I was watching Kobe Bryant. And those of you who know that I'm a Laker fan, I was a huge Laker fan. I loved Kobe. He was finally this clean-cut kid. But man, straight out of high school into the NBA. Awesome player. But too much, too fast. And he fell in the public eye. And it happens time and time again. Too much at one time, too much too fast for someone growing up, for a young person. And there is great wisdom here. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. And the principle stands for us as well. And I'll say to those of you who are under 30, listen, don't rush the Lord's plan for your life. Don't rush it. Jesus waited 30 years. Now, if it were me, I'd say, look, Jesus, when you turned 18, you could have done a whole lot more ministry before you turned 33. Think of all the years that you could have been out there, Lord. You waited until you were 30, and then you got in three scant years, and that's all it was? Three years that changed the entire world forever. But he was 30. He waited. He didn't rush it. He allowed the Lord to work and to do and to prepare. And when he was 30, it was the right time don't rush the Lord. By the way, don't assume, those of you who are a bit older, that your service is over when you turn 50. If that's the case, we have nine years for the bridge and I'm out of here. Okay? But those of you who are at 50 or over 50, well, let me share this with you. The Jewish Midrash is an oral commentary on different aspects of the Torah. And speaking about this verse, it says specifically that priestly service was terminated at age 50, for after that the capacity to, capacity to sing well diminishes greatly. <laughs> so, <laughs> I thought that was important to share. I don't know if you feel that way. But you might ask, well, okay, so, so this is the deal for the priesthood. What do I do when I approach age 50? Flip ahead to Numbers chapter 8. Numbers chapter 8, verse 25, tells us the following. 
says, at the age of 50 years, they shall retire from service and the work and not do anymore. Which is not a, a, a harsh requirement of the Lord, it's a gift. Hey, you've worked 20 years, you can retire. However, he says something else. They may, however, verse 26, assist or serve their brothers in the tent of meeting to keep an obligation. But they themselves shall do no work. Well, how does that work? A priest turns 50, and he can still serve, he can still assist, he can still help out, but he can't do any work. So how do you assist? How do you help out? You're 50 as a priest, you still have some life ahead of you, you still feel like, man, i got stuff to give in this world, what do I do? Look back at verse 24. It says the Lord spoke to Moses and said this, This is what applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall enter to perform the service in the work of the tent of meeting. Now wait a minute. Okay, we have one of those biblical discrepancies. See, there are contradictions in Scripture, and the Bible's not as perfect as you say it is. Listen, guys. The 25 years old and upward serves a purpose. When a Levite turned 25, he could enter into the priestly ministry as an apprentice. He got five good years of training, and then at age 30, he was good to go. But the 30-year-old to 50-year-old category of priests was busy doing the work. So who would train the 25 to 30-year-olds? The over 50 crowd. What an awesome idea. What a perfect plan. Man, yeah, when you hit 50, take a break, you can retire, but there's still work to be done. You work on the younger ones. You've had 20 years of experience. A lot of us, when we get older, those of you who are 50 and older, you've got life experience that is valuable, that is precious. Maybe you are retired, but there are young people in the congregation coming up. Children in the fellowship who could benefit from your wisdom. Man, I benefit from the uh, wisdom of the guys older than me on our eldership every day. I'm not saying that they should all be retired. But that's why I surround myself with men who are older than me. Les is older than me. I know you're shocked. <laughs> but we get together often and just talk. And I can't tell you how I benefit from his years of ministry. This is what Les is doing. He's assisting. He's serving his brother in the tent of meeting. And I praise God for you, Les. So... Moving on. That's not the only significance in the numbers. Psalm 40, verse 7 tells us the following. About this number 30, and of course Jesus beginning public ministry at age 30, the priest began his priesthood at 30, so did Jesus. Psalm 40, verse 7 says, Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. And Jesus said also in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I think there's a truth here, gang, that in the law, in the ordinances, in all the teachings of the prophets, Jesus filled every iota. He fulfilled every dot. There's not a single thing in the law that Jesus himself did not fulfill. Even turning 30 and beginning his public ministry at the same time the priest did. And you see it over and over and over. Jesus fulfills everything, every nuance, every requirement in the scriptures, getting it all points to his life and his nature. And so he started his priestly ministry right on schedule. So those are the numbers. Consider the colors. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. This is the work of the descendants of Kohath in the tent of meeting concerning the most holy things. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in, and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. 
and they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it. By the way, that's probably not porpoise. It's probably badger. A tough, thick, but tough and thick on one side, soft on the other side. And they shall spread the porpoise skin over the ark of the, of the testimony. And over it they put a cloth of pure blue, and then they inserted the poles to carry it. So as these priests are carrying it along, you never saw the ark just being carried wide open like that. It was carried with its coverings. Okay, who, who was in the covering ministry of the Gershonites? And they would go in, and, and Moses and Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood, they would cover it up, and then the Gershonites would carry it. Why is it covered with blue? We talked about back in Exodus and Leviticus that blue is a picture or a color of heaven. It's a color of things heavenly. And, of course, the Ark of the Tabernacle is the closest to heaven that the Israelites got. It was that place where God met with them. So that blue color, interesting. But going on, it says, verse 7, Over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall also spread a cloth of blue, and put on it the dishes and the pans and the sacrificial bowls and the jars for the drink offering, and the continual bread shall be on it. So even when they're moving, apparently the bread was on the table of showbread even while the uh, traveling was going on. And then it says, verse 8, They shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet material and cover the same with a covering of porpoise skin and they shall insert its poles. This is the other place, only place where the scarlet material is even mentioned. This is the only place where the scarlet material is used as a covering over the table of showbread. Why? Well, if you know from the New Testament that Jesus is the bread of the presence, Jesus is the bread of life, then it's completely appropriate that Jesus, whose blood flowed red as scarlet, would be represented by the table of showbread, but now by this scarlet covering going over it. Scarlet is the blood of Jesus. Going on, verse 9 says, They'll take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand for the light, along with its lamps and its snuffers and trays and all its oil vessels by which they serve it. And they shall put it and all its utensils in a covering of porpoise skins, again probably badger, and shall put it on the carrying bars. Over the golden altar, over the golden altar they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of porpoise skin and it shall, and shall insert its poles. Going on, verse 12. They shall take all the utensils of service with which they serve in the sanctuary and put them in a blue cloth and cover them with the covering of porpoise skins and carry them on the carrying bars. See the blue cloth, porpoise skins used on everything else. But then verse 13, one more color to notice. Then they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. A purple cloth. Goes on and said they'll put on it all its utensils by which they serve in connection with it the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, basins, utensils of the altar, and they shall spread over it a covering of porpoise skin and insert its poles. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary when the camp is set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come and carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. That's right, it wasn't the Gershonites, it was the Kohathites who carried those things. Now, this purple cloth, why a purple cloth? The Bible tells us in Mark 15, and the purple cloth, note what it was on. It was on the altar, the altar sacrifice. Mark 15:17 tells us they dressed him up in purple. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And so it's wholly appropriate 
that the the um, altar of sacrifice be covered over with purple in the same way that Jesus was before he went to the ultimate altar of sacrifice. Well, reading on, tells us that uh, verse 17, the Lord said to, spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Do not let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off from among the Levites. Do this to them that they may, have, that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. Aaron and his sons shall go in and assign each of them to his work and to his load. But they shall not go in and see the holy objects even for a moment or they will die. Now you might say, well, wait, they're, they're Levites. How come they can't see the holy objects? They're Levites, gang, but they're not high priests. And they were not allowed to see it. And there's a principle here that I think applies also to church ministry and, the, and Christianity today. There are some things in ministry that some of us shouldn't see. There are things that are done in the daily functioning of a church that frankly are some people's are, are none of some people's business. So Rick, are you saying you guys are hiding some stuff from us? No, not at all. But I'll tell you what, I don't want to see what the offering is every Sunday. I personally don't want to see whose names are on the checks. Why? Because I might die. <laughs> I might pass out right there. It might be too much for me. I'll guarantee you this. If I knew what everybody gave in this church, it would affect how I treated you. I hate to say that, but gang, I have a sinful nature. And if I knew what the offering was like from different individuals, yeah, it would impact me. You bet it would. So that's an area where even as pastor of this church, I have no business looking into those things. Because it would affect me in a negative way. There are times where I, I come home and there's something that's happened. I won't tell Cheryl what's going on. She, what's, what's happening, she said, in fact, this afternoon. She was asking about something. I said, you know what? I can't tell you. Oh, that's not healthy for a marriage. A husband keeping something from his wife? You know what? She doesn't need to know. Because it would hurt her. It would harm her. All the things you guys say behind her back. No, just kidding. <laughs> Nothing like that ever happens. But then this, this principle we see played out in Israel. In First Samuel chapter 6, we don't have time to read it. I'll, I'll just tell you the story quickly. The Ark of the Covenant has been taken by the Philistines. And they take it into their land and they're proud of themselves and, and it just it wreaks havoc across the land. It messes up their god Dagon. Remember the dog, god Dagon, the half-fish, half-man, stood in the, in the temple of one of the Philistines and they put the ark there and it fell over on its face, you know, here to Dagon tomorrow kind of thing. So Dagon was no good against the Ark of the Covenant. They finally got sick of it, the Philistines did, and put it on a cart. They sent that cart back toward Israel and they said, well, if it goes back to Israel, then they can have their Ark of the Covenant back. And the oxen just carried that cart right on back to Israel to a town called Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh, the people saw the ark coming and they were overjoyed. They gathered around the ark. Praise the Lord, the ark is back with Israel again. The power of God back here among us. This is fantastic. And so some people, just to make sure that the Philistines hadn't messed with it, opened the ark and looked inside. Remember the scene at the end of Indiana Jones? Remember that? When they all looked at the guy's face melted and the other guy's face exploded. I'm not sure if that's what happened, but the Bible tells us that day 50,070 men died in Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark. Because they were not to look into the ark. Oh, but Rick, it was so long ago that God gave that ordinance. You mean he still holds them, the things that he told them, like years and years? Yeah, absolutely. God doesn't forget, gang. And so they looked in and there are some things people should never look into because it would damage our walk with the Lord. It could even kill your faith. If you knew what was said here or known there, 
Remember as a kid wishing that I could have the, the power of invisibility. The older you get, the more you realize you don't want to be invisible around people who don't know you're there because they'll say things about you that you really don't want to hear. So what do we do? Just be content with where the Lord has you. If you want to look into something, look into Jesus. As the Hebrew writer said, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. I know inquiring minds may want to know. But if you want to know what God wants you to know, the faithful mind fixes their eyes on Jesus. Well, verse 21, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take a census of the sons of Gershon, also by their fathers' households, by their families, 30 years and upwards to 50 years old, you shall number them. Going on ahead, it tells us more about Gershon, and we've already seen this. It's spoken what the Gershonites did, how they carried their load. But it tells us in verse 28 that the Gershonites were under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. Okay, reading on. The Merorites, now the next section, tells the same thing. For the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and now the Maronites, 30 years to 50 years. And if you notice down in verse 33 that they were under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. Now the total numbering here, verse 36, is 2,750 Kohathites. Down in verse 40 is 2,630 Gershonites. Down in verse 44, it's 3,200 Merorites. And these are all their numberings. And verse 47 says, from 30 years and upward, even to 50 years old, everyone who could enter to do the work of the service and the work of carrying in the tent of meeting, their numbered men were 8,580 Levites. Now one last thing I want you to see here. You may have noticed that Aaron's two remaining sons had the responsibility of overseeing the rest of the Levites. Verse 16 tells us Eleazar oversaw the Kohathites. So he was of the Aaronic priesthood. He was one of the high priests, but he oversaw the Kohathites. Okay? It also tells us in verse 28 and 33 that Ithamar oversaw the Gershonites and the Kohathites. Did I get that wrong way? Gershonites and the Merorites. Okay, so Eliezer oversaw the Kohathites. Ithamar oversaw the Gershonites and the Merorites. But I want you to know this and don't miss this. Ithamar is doing double duty. Eliezer just had to oversee one group. Ithamar had to oversee two groups. Why is that? Because, gang, none of us burn out in a vacuum. What? None of us have no impact on other people when we decide to pull out. It never happens. Someone who's involved in any aspect of ministry, listen, if you pull out and say, I'm not going to do that anymore, guess what? The ministry is still there. The work still needs to be done. Just because I don't put my dishes in the dishwasher... I mean, it doesn't mean they're going to just kind of magically find their way there on their own. I've learned this. It was a great conversation that Cheryl and I had when she looked at me one day and said, Honey, how do you think the dishes get from the sink into the dishwasher? And I'm like, Well, sweetheart, that extra, like, two and a half feet kills me. I, just, I mean, I'm doing good to get it to the counter. But it still has to get there somehow. What in the world are you saying? Ithamar's not getting his dishes into the dishwasher? No, he is. He's doing double duty because Nadab and Abihu sinned against the Lord, burned out, as it were, left a gap, and now you have Ithamar and Eleazar, and they have to cover all the work. In God's plan, there were four sons of Aaron. And four sons of Aaron, if they were overseeing three families of priests, 
you would have had one son for each family and an an alternate who could have rotated in making the work easier making it better for the sons of Aaron but no the other two they're gone their history they're out of there and now Ithamar is doing double duty someone always has to pick up the slack the work's going to get done gang God is going to call those into ministry it amazes me and I hate to say this it just tends to be a reality we have an incredibly incredibly generous fellowship when it comes to giving and tithing and offerings incredibly generous but you know without even looking at the numbers and I haven't I could probably guess that it's about 15-20% to 20%, maybe on the high side of the congregation that's carrying the bulk of the load in ministry and things being done to grow a church it tends to be 10-15% of the people who are really carrying it and they love to and their sleeves are rolled up and they're happy because man they're walking in grace remember I told you they're the ones who get to camp right by the tabernacle experiencing the joy of the Lord and the glory of the Lord more than others but somebody's got to pick up the slack somebody makes it happen the dishes don't magically get from the sink to the dishwasher and Paul writes in Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And so as we go through here, we can count the number of the Levites all we want. But what God was really looking for is Levites he could count on. People he could count on. Now this is truly the last thing. Numbers chapter 5 Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper Everyone having a discharge Every person who is unclean because of a dead person Send away both male and female You shall send them outside the camp So that they will not defile their camp Where I dwell in their midst And the sons of Israel did so And sent them outside the camp Just as the Lord had spoken to Moses Thus the sons of Israel did We'll stop there But listen We can talk all we want about the physical health issues of Israel and how it was wise that the lepers were outside the camp. It was healthier for everyone else. We can talk about kosher laws and we can talk about how God laid all these things out to keep the people well and healthy. But gang, the point here is the removal of these defiling elements and the purpose of keeping the camp clear was one thing, that God was dwelling in their midst. He's talking organization. We get on in chapters 5 and 6, he begins to talk about purification. I want this camp pure because I want to live here. I want to be in you, among you. And I wonder how that would affect and impact every decision I make with regards to my physical body. With regards to my behavior as a Christian, if I recognize that the word that became flesh dwelled in my flesh... As Jesus said, John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come and make our abode with him. We have something the Israelites never had. They had the glory of God dwelling in the center of the camp. You have the glory of the Holy Spirit of the Father dwelling within you. In your heart. That's the Holy of Holies right there. And ultimately all the rules and regulations and requirements of Israel were because the Lord wanted to dwell among His people. So my encouragement to you as we finish is let's love Him. Let's keep His word. Let's care about and for His people so that we might be counted as a royal priesthood. 
so that God will be pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in us. Amen? God is good. Father, thank You so much for Your love. Thank You for this powerful promise that You live. You dwell inside of us. You seal us with Your Holy Spirit. You want to pour out Your Spirit on us. Father, we receive this. But I pray, Lord, that You will give us a real awareness of Your presence. So that even as we walk day in and day out the lives we live, we will live for You and towards You. And that You would find in the middle of the camp of our hearts a pure place to dwell. A pure place, pure only because of the blood of Jesus, which we thank You for and praise You for in Jesus' name. Amen.